the best of times, the worst of times. The success of the 1980s was extraordinary, and then HIV came along, and that hit us like a plague. What well, it wouldn't like if it was a plague. Out of nowhere, this cloud no bigger than a man's hand, gay cancer in New York and in San Francisco, and then all of a sudden, it hit us. And in a space of a couple of years, about a quarter of the people I knew died, and it was devastating. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we meet interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and try and work out what it is that's going on with them. And today I have, I suppose I would say my friend, because he is, um, Reverend Richard Coles. This is going to be a very vicarly one, I think, today. Richard, welcome, my friend. Hello, Giles. Very nice to see you, dear And boy. you, and you. <laughs> so what we what we do here is the first, the first thing we do is... we. Uh, I ask you about, I guess, where you come from and your family and your um, your background and all those sorts of things. So paint me a picture of of home for you. Well, I was born in Northampton, grew up near Kettering, son of a shoe manufacturer, who was son of a shoe manufacturer, who was son of a shoe manufacturer. Oh, really? Three generations? Four, in fact. Goes back to a bloke of, who, was, who was a silk weaver, son of a silk weaver, lived in a little damp cottage, was a man of parts, this is in the middle years of the 19th century, a man called Owen Robinson, uh, became a clock repairer, then a clock maker, then he started the Champion Works in Kettering and he invented the Christmas cracker-making machine. And from that he went on to invent a holiday machinery that mechanised shoe production. And so my family's story was typical of um, that shoe manufacturing history of Northamptonshire. Middle years, at the end of the 19th century, started industrialising. First World War came along, much to the enrichment materially of our family firm second world war came along what's the firm called it was called the coles boot and shoe company and oh. then the coles group oh right, very good and uh, it sort of grew and grew and grew the second world war came along wars parche napoleon armies march on their feet yeah so boots and shoes good news and then uh, my father i was born in 1962 my father took over in 1970 when his father dropped down dead of a heart attack in norfolk and that was the world I grew up in. The privileges that that afforded included going to local um, public school where my father had gone and all of some males in our family had gone. So it was a sort of world of uh, relative privilege. And your mum? And my mum, her father was a dentist and her mother was, I suppose, a blue stocking in a way. Right. He married the boss's daughter. He came from Exeter and then... Married the boss's daughter in Kettering, the practice he worked in. And my mother met my father over badminton or whatever the whatever Kettering, Kettering passed for <laughs> That's a That's not a euphemism, is it? No. <laughs> and, uh, and then my father, after military service, who was in the Royal Tank Regiment and served in Korea, uh, they got married. And then we grew up in a sort of village on the edge of Kettering called Barton Seagrave, which is where all the shoe people, well, the shoe kind of... Um, so industrialists, so classic industrialists type Midland of... Midland industrialists. Midland manufacturers, really. With a few quid. A few quid. And not... You know, it was a sort of recent thing. So before the middle years of the 19th century, utterly unknown to history, unnoticed by anybody. But liberal in politics, nonconformist in religion. My great-great-grandfather was uh, anti-vaccine. I nearly went to prison for it. He was certainly fine for it. But you know, many, well, there was a huge uh, there was compulsory vaccination, and lots, and that became a really key issue in Northamptonshire among the nonconformist circles about people refusing to be vaccinated. So he was part. I mean, he was part of a um, a kind of very ambitious, incredibly industrious, religious, political rising class. And your dad religious? Well, by the time it got to my parents, the nonconformism and the liberal politics had turned into Anglican Toryism. Okay. Because wealth does that, does yes. that to people. So my, my, my mother actually went to school in Scotland, and so there was a lot of Scottish Presbyterian in her background, a boarding school. And my father was sort of nominally Anglican, Christmas and Easter, but would approve of the Church of England because it reflected the Englishness of God. When my father was dying, he... Um, he was visited by God and he asked me about this. That could happen. I said, well, I'm sure that's true. And he said, how, and I said, how did you know it was God? And he said it was because he was an old Etonian. So, uh, <laughs> You're joking. No, really. So, uh, so that was but my... he went to the local, whatever the local posh school is that yeah. you're referring to. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Wellingborough School. Okay, right. right. And, um, and that was where I went to. 
and it was academically undistinguished. It's the archetypal minor public school, but it was very good at cricket, which was my father's passion, and very good at music, which was mine. So it worked for me, really. Okay, and they were so music was your thing at school. Academic? Yeah, I was. I was very swatty when I was young and had um, unusual uh, ability when I was very young. And then got into music. My my, uh, my grandfather was a pianist. Of He used to do Stanley Holloway songs and make everybody laugh. Obviously smutty versions of them in retrospect. I didn't realise that at the time. And then my, my great aunt, my grandmother's sister on the other side, was a violinist. And so I was sort of, music was part of the heritage, if you see what I mean. And I loved it. And as soon as I could get, um, I started to play the piano when I was very young, about four, and then the violin. And then I became a chorister when I was eight. And like lots of people who end up doing what we do for a living, or lots of people who end up making music for a living in England. Um, Cathedral chorister? No, school chorister. A really good chapel choir. And that's where I learnt. So, you know, if, if you're doing that well, you're you know performing at a professional standard literally while you're in short trousers so it's a very so you uh, sight, you were sight reading when you were really small and i guess so i mean I, I think i started so young that i didn't i managed to do all those kind of laborious chore stuff before i knew it was laborious in a chore right i was just a kid you know right, i was yeah. a little boy so by the time i got to about eight or nine i was already reasonably proficient and then music came easily to me after that so you sound a little bit swatty I was very swatty, nerdy, yeah, specky. I had German measles when I was 11 and I um, wrecked my sight, so I had thick glasses. And I loved books, I loved culture. I knew that Kettering was never going to be writ large in the annals of metropolitan gloss. Yeah. And I sensed that there was a wider world with a richer culture. Called London, was it? Well, actually, it was Paris. So me and my friend Colin, who I grew up with, who lived in Wesley Road around the corner, he and I were determined that we were going to leave Kettering behind us and go to live in Paris. In fact, we both did. And Colin is still there, but he is now the doyen of barmen and is the uh, head barman at the uh, Ritz in Paris. Oh, wow. The Hemingway Bar, where he is um, legendary. Wow. So I'm trying to get from, I'm trying to get from Swatty yeah. to pop star. Well, of course, that was puberty. Okay. Puberty came along, and with it, the realization that I was gay. And back then in uh, Northamptonshire in 1970, not a thriving gay scene. No, and it wasn't. And of course, in those days, it was not a hostile. It was a hostile and not an inclusive world. And of course, if you were in an all boys public school, it was not information that you wish to share because it would have made you extraordinarily vulnerable to the sort of vicious bullying that would be typical of the time. So it was a sort of dark secret that was deeply troubling and it kind of made me go maybe go off the rails. I sort of became Bolshevik, literally Bolshevik actually. I started reading The Guardian. Um, <laughs> That's not that Bolshevik. Well by public school standards it was quite Bolshevik. Right. So it was me and Matthew Gamage and Gary Hawkins and we all read The Guardian. And uh, and then punk came along, and my, you know, I was a classically trained pianist, organist, violinist, chorister, but I recognised in punk a sort of wildness and an edge and a refusal to cleave to the status quo and to orthodoxy, and that was incredibly exciting. And so insofar as a public school permits one to go punky, I went as punky as, that, as I could. It wasn't very punky at all. But that was really the thing that gave me the courage. And, the and did your mum and dad think that was a bit they strange? They were despairing by then because I, would, I, just, I did very badly in my O-levels. And also I got into trouble in school in various one thing or another, mostly smoking-related offences, actually. And so it was the thought it would be wise for me to seek fresh educational challenges. Oh, so I bailed out of school at 16. Right. A right mess, actually. But my mum found this brilliant... This was, you know, the days of the golden age, really, in education. So there's this visionary man called Gordon Valens, who was an actor and a theatre producer and a director and a writer. And he sort of invented theatre in education. And to serve that, he formed a department at an FE college in Stratford-on-Avon, near him I got to thee, with a bespoke drama studio and offered a vocational course uh, for delinquent middle-class teenagers, effectively. So I found my way there. I loved the theatre, the possibility of a life transformed, all that kind of thing. So I went off to Stratford-on-Avon 
and spread my wings a little bit and took my first faltering steps into the gay identity that first kiss well that was earlier but i'm afraid i'll have to um, you can be tight-lipped about it but it would no first kiss came earlier actually there right. was some rudimentary experiments of that nature right when I was probably a young teenager right. at school, but I will spare the blushes of those <laughs> cabinet ministers that you're... <laughs> who might be listening to this and quaking in their shoes. Um, but no, that was. Um, the, but that, that, what I first got in Stratford on Avon was the, you know, that there was an identity that could be lived. Yeah. But I knew that it was really London for me, and I was hopelessly romantically attached to people who couldn't be romantically attached back, which was a bore for them, for me. So I realised London was the place, and I couldn't... The pretext to get there was quite... I'm quite... You know me, I'm quite a conventional, timid person by nature. But it was simply a necessity. My kind of mongrel sexuality obliged me to uh, find a new world to live in. So I got run over. I was on my new bike. I was 18, just after my birthday. And I got run over on the way to college. And the result of that was criminal injuries compensation. 2,000 quid. I was 18. It was 1980. To London I went. I see. And that was really the... And then presumably the gay scene is a part, full part of London experience. Well, yeah, an interesting timing. You know what these are, timing is... I mean, two things. One was that London in those days was much more accessible to poor young people than it is now. So you could come to London, you could get hard-to-let council property in Zone 1 or Zone 2, as we call it now. You could squat, you could get cheap rentals, and that's what it did. It, a flat over a TV repair shop in King's Cross, Caledonian Road, where it hits Pentonville Road, not a salubrious part of town. Enterprising in its own way, a little wake-up for a middle-class boy from the Midlands. Um, so that was a point of entry. But also the gay scene had come along and it opened up space where you could do that. Pubs, clubs, bars, a bookshop, gays the word Gays the word bookshop. That's not Street. that far from, from King's Cross. No, and it was a place where they had a coffee shop there so you could meet. And that's where I met Jimmy Somerville, like me, a, a gay runaway, although in his case from a very tough working-class sectarian background in Glasgow. And, and that was great because being gay was a real commonwealth then. So people from radically different backgrounds like me and Jimmy couldn't have been more different. And I don't suppose our paths would have crossed particularly had it not been... Very different this, personalities, you two. Well, yeah, and that was our strength and also our problem, as it were. But the gay scene then really was a commonwealth because of this uh, shared identity that was so formative... And at the same time, that being something that put you into opposition and conflict with the world. You know, it was an age of homosexuality was criminalised. So we had a real fight on our hands. And also, what was different between us and the first generation of gay lib was punk. The music, but also the manners, radicalised us, changed us, and gave us some energy and some fierceness and some teeth. And that, I think... Created... So who were your bands? The Clash or the... Was it that sort of thing? Well, it was all sorts of bands, really. I okay. mean, I suppose everyone listened to The Jam and The Clash and all that kind of thing. But it was interesting stuff that Factory Records would do, bands like the De Russi Column, New Order, all that kind of stuff. There was sort of opening up new territory. And, and that was really the world... That created the space in which we could do our thing, arm ourselves for the fight, and it really was a fight in those days. So was your, what was your first band then? Well, my first band was at school. It was a punk band at school called Xerox, because we copied everything. And then that became The Vols, and I played keyboards in The Vols with my brother on bass and various other people. And then I was in a band called Two People for a while, which was a band signed to Polydor when I first came to London, because I was a handy musician, so and I played keyboards, and I played saxophone by then too. So I was beginning to kind of work uh, at that. And then Bronsky Beat happened, and Jimmy Somerville just happened to be the most brilliantly talented singer of his generation. And dancer. Oh, well, the whole package. Extraordinary energy. Yeah. And like Jimmy, who had sort of, you know, he grew up a small, red-headed, put-upon gay boy in a tenement in Mary Hill. He, for him, life was survival, and he worked out how to survive. And he was fearless, is fearless, brave, undimmed, undaunted, and incredibly exciting to be around, if not always easy. And uh, and I saw something in Jimmy, and I think he saw something in me, and we started working together on music. I went to play saxophone in Bronsky Beat, and then Jimmy and I left and formed the Communards with the explicit aim of bringing down Margaret Thatcher by doing covers of 70s disco. 
Where is she now? <laughs> exactly right. Dear boy. My word. Those were the years then, weren't they? Incredibly exciting time. And just really fortunate to be in a place at a time when things were new. And there were lots of people who were very inspiring and visionary. And uh, and I was just very fortunate, really. And it took off. I mean, quite quickly, Bronsky Beat took off, didn't it? Instantly. Yeah. But with Jimmy's voice was so, you heard that voice, and it was such, <coughs> such an amazing effect on people. Yeah. No one had been an explicitly out gay band before, although Tom Robinson had done, um, had been, he Glad himself to be had gay. been, yeah. Um, and so that was kind of a new thing. And it just caught the moment. Yeah. And I think people were very excited by Jimmy. It's and haunting. It was extraordinary. He was an extraordinary presence. And the two of you together, I mean, I spent my, as you know, I mean, I spent my life dancing and to, to that sort of stuff. And you say, <laughs> well, we probably met. In Newcastle. In Rock Shots in when New- I was probably. You were a go-go boy. Yeah, I was a go-go boy. <laughs> <laughs> In gay clubs in Newcastle. Trotting that well-worn path to ordination in the <laughs> Church of England. In rock shots. Yeah, probably. I remember rock shots. Good gear. I like rock shots. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, you know, again, I think people sort of, the, the the oddness of me and Jimmy, me kind of, you know, middle class, beaky, swatty, nerdy one, and him not that. Uh, and that sort of worked, I suppose. And our different sensibilities came together. And for a time, that worked very well. I mean, so I imagine this is like... The, the success, I imagine this is really quite hedonistic time as well. Well, it was, but more for Jimmy than for me, because Jimmy never had to work for his brilliance. It was just total gift. And he never did anything to... He never practised, he never had to look after it. He just lived his life, and out of that produced this sound that was vulnerable and powerful and strong and you know extraordinary. Whereas I mediocre musician had to work very hard for the stuff I did so that began to become a source of some resentment because Jimmy rightly got all the attention I began to wilt a little bit in his shadow which I pretended not to mind but I did mind and and also the things that made us interesting our differences fed into the stuff that kind of began to come between us like you know understanding the world in a different sort of way and that our shared commitment to winning gay rights was fine but that wasn't the only thing about us i was a middle class boy middle class assumptions he was a working class boy working class and that stuff began to get quite under the pressures of being in a pop band which is uh, extraordinarily pressured although is that the touring is that the well it's partly that you know you're with each other all the time you're touring a lot you're under a lot of pressure because there are high expectations about what you do. But also it takes you out of your familiar world, which gives you your bearings, your values, your sense of yourself, into another world in which you basically spend a lot of time in an airport mm. or on a bus or in a studio. And that can be quite impoverishing if what you're about is connected to stuff that's dynamic and new and emerging in the world. So you become... Also, it's an odd irony with us is that we were, you know, a pop band that was dedicated to the overthrow of Thatcherism. Red Wedge. Well, we started that, one of the people who started that. But not only we were exemplars of Thatcherism. We were young, we were entrepreneurial, we came up with an idea, we took our product to market, we exported it abroad. No one benefited materially from the tax breaks of the 80s more than pop bands. So there was a certain irony which became a very heavy irony that we were, in fact, the opposite. And you made a few quid. We made a few quid, and, of course, that changes lots of things. Yeah. And it was the 80s when uh, lots of people were making a few quid, and there was this big kind of churn of... I was living in Islington then, and I bought my house in Islington, end of terrace, Georgian house in Barnsbury Conservation Area. Wow, man. <laughs> Before that was a thing. Wow. But you could see London changing in front of you. One side of the street was council tenants often connected to the Adams family from Islington, who were kind of around the market and with connections to... Proper rogues. Some would say. Couldn't possibly comment. (laughs) Then the other side, it was all gay men with kind of scruffy little dogs Mm. called Gladstone and Disraeli and Foggy and Bramble. So uh, God stuff is like... We haven't talked about God stuff. Is God stuff very, very under the radar here? or is is it? it... Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I, as soon as I was capable of thinking from the age of eight, I was absolutely certain that Christianity was a fiction, a fairy tale. 
and that nobody in their right mind could possibly cleave to this notion that we live in a kind of that God existed. So I was absolutely clear about that, and I started the school atheists club in the oh, Chapel did Choir you write? with Matthew Gamage and Porky Hamblin, and um, and the, but but I think like lots of people, I loved being in church, chapel, cathedral stuff there resonates it doesn't resonate anywhere else and there were people there who were I mean, inspiring and interesting and who lived life with a commitment to something which even though it was obviously fanciful they had some integrity about I've it just, it's just come to me that ain't necessarily so that's a that was a Bronsky Beat song was that yeah. a Bronsky Beat song yeah. but that, yeah. you were a part of that as well wasn't it so but, that's, a, that's a religious critique isn't it yeah, I mean, uh, a religious critique, I had plenty of that, no shortage of that. But what was interesting about me was a powerful, submerged, unacknowledged identification with it. So I remember being in New York. We were recording an album in New York. We were there for Christmas. And Mark Ashton, who was a remarkable man, if you've seen the film Pride, you'll know about him. He was an activist uh, who ran the, um, the Young Communist League and was gay and was an amazing person. And he and he came from Northern Ireland. He and I, one Christmas Eve in New York, decided on impulse to go to Midnight Mass at St Patrick's Fifth Avenue. So we turned up, but of course it was ticket only, you know, St Patrick's Fifth Avenue. But a woman, elegant woman, who got out of a limousine and was dressed in furs. We were in five o ones and DMs <laughs> and Crombies, and she said, "Do you want to go?" And we went, "Yeah." And she said, "Well, you can have my tickets." So she gave us a ticket to that me and Mark ended up on the end of this row of basically the Kennedys, as far as I could tell, who were all very grand. But we went to Midnight Mass and I I was always checking in, if you see what I mean, yeah. seeing if it was as I remembered it. And like anyone formed in the Anglican choral tradition, the music, Giles, mm. the hymns. Mm. They're the best theologians. The musicians are the theologians. In the Church of England, I think that's probably yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, I think in the church generally, actually, I think they're the... They're the great theologians. Bach's the great theologian. I mean, there's the, they're, the, they're the people that really describe God more fully than anybody else can. And also that stuff, when it's in you, if it gets in you young, you never lose it. No. So that was there kind of waiting to be activated. What really, of course, the sort of the best of times, the worst of times, success in the 1980s was extraordinary, and then HIV came along. And that hit us like a plague. Well, it wasn't like it was a plague. Out of nowhere, this cloud no bigger than a man's hand, gay cancer in New York and in San Francisco, and then all of a sudden it hit us. And in a space of a couple of years, about a quarter of the people I knew died. And it was devastating. And I think it was really as that... It's interesting, I talk, you must do this, we talk to people at the end of their lives who maybe recall the war or some extraordinarily traumatic experience in the past. <clears throat> and at the end of their lives, they're able to talk about it in a way. And I think now, 30 years after the AIDS crisis hit us, it's only just now talkable about. When it came along, it was so awful. You did what you, what you had to do to survive it and endure it. And that was the thing that, more than anything, pushed me towards... Well, I, used to, I, w- I walked into a church one day I don't know why, impulse. And and then I walked out again. And then I went into another one when I was in Scotland. I was in Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Festival and I walked into St Mary's Palmerston Place, the Anglican Cathedral there, and they were singing Evensong and they were doing a setting, Stanford in B-flat, that I'd sung when I was a chorister. And it, Lovely. Well, something within me began to move and then I went to see someone I didn't want to be and so I thought it was madness so I went to see a psychiatrist and he said you need to see a priest but I didn't know any priest so I went to see a friend of mine Sarah Maitland who was married to a priest at that time and she kind of pointed me towards a church and said you need to just go in and see what happens and I did and the minute I thought I'd gone in as a sort of sceptical spectator but I wasn't it was I realised that this was was it partly somewhere that you could park the pain of all that was going on without... Not park the pain, yield the pain. Right. Experience the pain, I think. And and also my own failures and all that stuff, that, you know, the really difficult, horrible stuff that... And also I think that, you know, the damage, like lots of gay men of my age and background, I was deeply wounded when I was young and denied the adolescence that others get because it wasn't available. 
And that takes its toll, I think. And as I got to 30, especially after, you know, a period of such extraordinary success, woohoo, um, that stuff began to become urgent. And I found in Christian practice, discourse, theology, an incredibly rich reflection on the kind of nature of being human, which is often to do with, in spite of our best efforts and intentions, we're imperfect creatures. And what's interesting about us is often in that gap between what we are and what we aspire to be. And so I began to deal with that. So is this is this is this all happening as the as the musical career is beginning to sort music of... faded, um, and then sort of I, got I can't involved. remember how it all ended for that. Well, for we that. just stopped, so we didn't break up or anything like that. Didn't want to do that, but we just finished a thing and said well, we'll have a break, and then we never started again. I and I by then I wasn't particularly singing songs called "Don't Leave Me This Way" when people were dying of you know, forms of pneumonia that would normally be treatable in a day. It just felt inadequate somehow. And so I started going to church and then walked away from pop music and I realised I needed to... So I went to university when I was 30, having not been to university before because I was too busy running away, I uh, and coming to London. I went to King's College London and did a theology degree because I realised that I had to really try to find my way into... Christianity and its richness. and did your did all your your previous mates did they think this was betrayal did they think it was bonkers did they understand or I suppose there's a, some did some didn't but well it came as a huge surprise to me so God knows what it came <laughs> to, to, to my friend I, mean, I, I didn't want I didn't want to be a Christian it was about as far from what I wanted to be as imaginable because I wanted to be you know the kind of hero of my own life and brave and bold and little and I wasn't and. And so I was, a very, you know, I, I, I trod very reluctantly into a church. But then, of course, when I got there, I realised that far from being hostile territory, it was my, you know, I, my I home. But we have something in common here, because I converted uh, in the library in King's College, London. Really? Yeah. That was when I made the decision, as it were. Did you, you know, know that's what point. you were doing? Uh, I think I probably did, actually, because it was one of those things that uh, uh, I'd always had this as a sort of people used to... I mean, it was not a million miles away from yours, except it wasn't the gay thing, but it was like there was lots of sort of nightclub exuberance and so forth. And uh, everybody would say about me that, oh, do you know he's got this slightly weird hobby that he's sort of like... Because I did philosophy and then I read... Uh, I was reading lots of sort of, sort of quasi-theology on the side. Never really went to church, but it was always there at the back of my head that I was, and I started to read about it. And and it was in, it was in um, the library and I was sitting there and I, it was suddenly... I sort of reading something was obviously having a powerful effect. I remember what it was. It was, it was Wittgenstein, actually. But, and, and I thought, I have to do something about this. I actually have to do something. And actually, I got up and I went and I went, I need to find a priest. I need to find out how to become a priest. That was my first thought. And I went to the dean, who was Reggie. Reggie Askew. Yes. And I said, uh, I, I think I... I think I want to become a priest. He goes, where do you go to church? I said, I don't. He said, okay, well. First things first. <laughs> and that was, the, that, was the, that was the beginning of the conversation, but it was, it was, it was there. But Wittgenstein can have that effect on people. Isn't there a thing about that? I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who was a philosopher, Oxford philosopher, who was doing his postdoctoral studies on Wittgenstein in Germany and just all of a sudden realised that the life of action, not the life of the mind, was for him. So he joined the Royal Marines. Well, it's, well, Wittgenstein did actually say to uh, some of his students, um, you know, it's about the doing. Yeah. There, there was a big thing. And in fact, I was in King's College because the person who was there was a student of Wittgenstein called Norman Malcolm. And uh, Norman Malcolm, who was a famous Wittgensteinian philosopher, and he had little sort of acolytes. And it was the nearest thing to Bible study I've ever done before, really. We used to go through the philosophical investigations line by line by line. And there were about five or six of us. Close used to reading. Sit, close reading. We used to sort of sit round um, Norman Malcolm's Norma feet. So it was, it was a madras. Anyway, that's like that's 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 what we we have that in common as well, my friend. Well, King's had a huge impact on me, partly because I met brilliant people who were exciting and who opened up to me, partly because I discovered that I was actually quite more intellectually able than I kind of thought, because I'd been away from that for such a long time. 
But you're quite self-deprecating about that, but you're very clever. I'm not really. Yes, you are. You're just self-deprecating about it, but you're very clever. I, I know people who are very clever, and I know I'm not one. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Well, that's well, whatever. There you go. But um, I'm not. I'm not humble bragging or anything. I just don't think yeah. I am. But um, I met people there who were excited, and, the, and the, the thing that was really formative for me was I went into New Testament in Greek, and I started. I really enjoyed Greek, and I started reading, particularly the Pauline epistles, and it was just like. You know, you read the Pauline epistles, especially if you read them in Greek, and you just sense this extraordinary mind and a bomb has gone off on it, in it and created this extraordinary... And it goes off in you, doesn't it? it? And it goes off in you too. And I just felt that depth, Charles, go reading Romans, Philippians, Ephesians, not by Paul, but never mind. And, um, and, and that was intellectually uh, transforming. And as that began to shed its light and come into focus, I thought... Uh, Why not join the most homophobic organisation? <laughs> well, it took that there is. It, it took a bomb going off to get me through the door. If you see what I mean, because I wasn't going to walk in there under and, you know, under my own energy. Um, but also, what came into focus was the idea that I would be ordained, and I really, really didn't want to get ordained. So I cleverly did the next, the thing I could most like being ordained in the Church of England that wasn't being ordained in the Church of England. I went to work for BBC Radio. So that was my next departure. Right. So I worked. First of all, I did. A, I was Emma Freud's agony aunt on GLR, which is the London BBC London station, produced by redheaded chap from Manchester called Chris Evans. Mm. Went from there to Radio Five, just beginning. Nobody knew what they were doing. Won an award, and then went from there to Radio Three and spent nine years doing Nightways, Radio Three's flagship arts magazine program, culture magazine program. Listened to by nobody, hugely enjoyable to make. Life settled down, was living in London during the week, had a cottage up in Northamptonshire, near where I'm from, uh, which was lovely, content, good, but never shook off that sense that. But there's a, the, the, I always think that there's, there's, there's one thing about that when you talk about faith and you talk about your experience, there's. Um, there's having sort of met the black dog, you know, yeah. having spent some time with the black dog. When 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 in this period uh, is is the black dog the eighties? Um, at that period, at the end of I think the black dog is part of my inheritance. Yes, actually. no, I understand that, but 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 it 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 emerges more forcefully at some times than in others. Yeah, and actually the funny thing is, you know, I think if you are on terms with the black dog, the black dog will forever be part of your life. I'd say, but. I have not, and I've had two serious crises. Once I was hospitalised in a psychiatric hospital when I was 17 in the brilliant and liberal regime of St Andrews, Northampton, which was, a, which was a wonderful experience. And then when I kind of crashed out of pop music, especially I had a kind of year of really spectacular drug taking, which ended with a crash. And that was tough. But I got through that. And then actually, since I've been a Christian, the black dog has kind of retreated us well I don't know I've not felt the dog knows his place that's what I find it for me it's yeah like... the dog knows his place and also the dog that kind of bowed despair I don't get that now and I've and so the other thing about Christianity and faith is that once that happened I've never it's never wavered for me yeah I mean Belief in myself wavers constantly. Belief in the Church of England is a very sketchy um, <laughs> thing indeed. But 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 faith in God. So how did you get ordained then? How did that come to happen? Well, so you could have just been stayed on the radio, which you sort of have done. <laughs> well, yeah. Although I thought I wasn't going to. You see, I in, in the end it was Mo Molan, who was an old friend of mine from Labour Party days of the nineteen eighties, who by the end of the nineties was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, did amazing things. But Mo had had her first brush with um, with brain cancer that was tragically she was to die of a few years later. But like lots of people who've had that brush, she didn't have time for shilly shallying. And I was going on to her one day, eh, kind of day, and she said, "Look, just do something about it. Don't get to the end of your life and wish you had." So I made a call, went to see someone, DDO. Diocesan Director of Ordinance, the people responsible for working. London Diocese. No, Lincoln Diocese. When I was up in Northamptonshire, the church I went to was in Stamford, which is actually Lincoln Diocese. So Lincoln Diocese, 
went off for selection as you know that three-day conference when they poke you and prod you and ask you questions and see if you're fit and I honestly at the end of it they'd said no that would have been absolutely fine but they said yes so I kind of shook but the like dust. so this is I'm going to press on the homophobia stuff because is this before the church it becomes a sort of culture wars type of issue we're just before then just aren't before we? then yeah. and there was I mean, there were, you know, there was a sort of change in the atmosphere. But I'd grown up in a Church of England and found my feet in a Church of England, which was very tolerant, if not explicit. And gay people in gay culture was um, enjoyed and uh, available. And and that was before it sort of, of course, once that once the once it became explicit then that changed things and also brought us into conflict with people who would find that not a thinkable Tony Higton type of era and all of those and then you go into that sort of Yeah, I mean so I wouldn't want to sort of personalize it. No, 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 I'm just trying to describe the the era. But what so. but what happened I mean basically what it, what what came out that was different was that what it really came down to was an argument over authority sexuality being an endlessly complex thing but the argument was people on the evangelical wing of the Church of England, which was then bold and in the ascendant or becoming so, believed that the Bible and a particular reading of the Bible, what we would call a conservative reading of the Bible, was very clear about the moral status of homosexuality, not acceptable. Those of us like me, particularly who've been through um, New Testament textual criticism, had a different view of the Bible and its authority, not rejecting it. So all that Greek came in quite handy. Well, yes, because if you start looking at the Bible in that kind of way, what you see is that it it is a work of literature that has evolved and it betrays... It's not a book, it's a library, and it's a library reflecting a very complex story, which is of human, human interaction with the experience of God. So it's by no means to dismiss its authority. It's just to say that we owe it our best reading. And within that best reading, you realise that it's more ambiguous than we think. And the idea that you can read it as you might a handbook for how to live your life is only partially true. It's too complex a work for that. Taking it literally is not taking it seriously. No, I think it's much truer than that, actually. Mm. And uh, because it's true to the depth and range of human experience. And so I began to see in that that if you want to use the Bible as a kind of proof text for outlawing what was plainly obvious to me, homosexuality is just a variation on the universal human theme of sexuality and in no means... I'm just morally neutral. Yeah. Uh, And also I'd seen the extraordinary grace and holiness of the lives of gay people and saw that there was nothing in that which could... Anyone who engaged with that seriously could think there was anything in that that wasn't entirely... Uh, consistent with the light and grace of the gospel. So I had no doubt about yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, same, same. And, you know, with that, um, that, that's... So it's never really been a problem for me, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I've never felt... I've had well, authority rec- is a different matter, how you how authority intersects with yeah, it. Yeah, but I've Not- never... Reconciling my sexuality with my faith has never been a problem. No. Reconciling my sinfulness with faith... Well, that's another story. But well, that's it's what not it's there for. <laughs> exactly. But it's not... Homosexuality is not sinful. No, no, no. No. But in terms of how the authorities deal with you, yeah. because you're out, because you're because you're clearly out, yeah. and, you know, one of the most high-profile, probably the most high-profile gay person that's become a priest in recent years, Richard. Well, so, the one we know about, anyway. Yes. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so there was twitches, must have been serious twitches from authority about it. Well, if there, I mean, I have to say I've been extraordinarily fortunate. I've always been very supported by bishops. And you know what it's like to get in the soup. You've done it yourself enough. Giles. And actually what I've, what I've found um, the hierarchy to be is extraordinarily supportive. Nice, I think they're kind of glad that I'm there doing my sort of thing. I think they sort of would keep a little distance from it too. I'm conscious that with my kind of ex- weirdly um, wide reach because of my media stuff and the peculiarities of my CV... I have a sort of perhaps an influence which exceeds my accountability. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an interesting one. Yes. So I, you know, I I don't I try to you know, the other thing about it is, is I'm a parish priest. Yeah. And who I am as a priest and as a Christian is really rooted in that. That's absolutely crucially important to me. So I you know, I am accountable to my parish, I'm accountable to my parishioners. I'm accountable to my community and also hierarchy bishops and all that kind of thing. So there is accountability. And there's a, there's a very strong pastoral side to you. And that pastoral side not only comes out 
um, through your parish and the work in your parish, but I think it also comes out with the way you engage people on the radio. Well, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that they're not discontinuous. I mean, it's different on the radio, what, you have seven minutes. And yes, then but in a like... pastoral encounter, you have whatever it takes. Yes. But uh, I like the idea of eliciting from people their story. Yeah. And to do that in a way yeah. which is, you know... So you serve your curacy in... Lincoln. In the Brexit heartland Boston. of Boston, the yeah. most Brexity town in the country, isn't it? Or one of them, certainly. It is. The, I got the highest vote turnout for Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that came as no surprise because anyone who'd lived in Boston knew that the enormous tensions there, because the arrival of because Boston's an agricultural town, and in the past has always got seasonal labour in to come and pick. There was often travellers in the past, Portuguese people, and then with the EU accession, of course, then it was Poland. And then the uh, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, wherever, and a huge number of non-English-speaking foreign nationals arrived in town at the same time, and it caused all kind all kinds of problems. And in that, you could see a sort of prefigured some of the issues that. Um, beset us today. But what, what what I saw, which I think I saw before lots of friends of mine who were living and working in places like London, was a white working class community that felt suddenly strange in a town that was no longer familiar, that was no longer theirs, and felt that they were not represented politically and felt that they were, for that, often derided, derided and scorned and overlooked and not taken seriously and I can remember seeing that tip into an electoral change and thinking if the main parties want to be able to engage with this constituency of people they need to get their act together and they don't think they really did get their act together and I think that you know has been a hugely uh you can't really overstate the significance of that, particularly in where we are now. And you're preaching into that when you start doing all that preaching stuff. I mean, preaching. Not, is well, a... my parish now has got my MP is Peter Bone, and uh, my parish is very high. Um, you get, I was talking to a member of our Conservative Association recently, who surprised me by saying that it wouldn't be surprising to him if every single member had voted for the Brexit Party in the European elections. So if you want to know how that part of England that feels most strongly that Brexit um, is overdue and urgently necessary, well, you can come to my parish and you'll find out. But you know about this, Charles, because I think you're, you plug into that too. Well, I do a bit. And my parents live about three or four miles away from, or maybe a bit long, more than that, away yeah. from where you where yeah. are. So I know your part of the world well. And, and the, the, other, the difference between you and me is that I'm a Remainer yeah. and uh, always have been. But unlike a lot of my friends, when the vote happened, I thought, and I still think now, that that has to be delivered. Because if we don't deliver it, and I, I wish we didn't, but you know, a voter's vote, I think it sends a message to anybody else saying, if you you had no need to seek democratic legitimacy for whatever it is you want to achieve politically, and I don't want to live in a world in which democracy is treated so lightly. And I get the argument, you know, situations change and democracy is not a given moment, but it's a chain and evolving thing. I get all that, but I've never found anyone explain that to me in a way which hasn't answered the question, what do you say to the people who voted to leave the European Union and we're not going to do it? Yeah, well, I mean, you're going to get me to stand up and applaud you saying that, but I mean, I don't know if my neutrality gone, <laughs> my shred of neutrality but that I, I try and maintain. That puts me at odds with a lot of my yeah, friends yeah, yeah, in a yeah. way which is sometimes yeah. quite difficult to handle. Yeah. But, but the church also, just to sort of move away from what is well-trodden territory, uh, the church has... And the connection between the church and, say, the white working class yes. and so forth has been, I think, quite seriously damaged by the fact that the church is 99.9% remain in terms of the way it understands the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's another, it's another feature of that alienation between, well, I'm, I'm worried about the alienation between the Labour Party and the, and the working class and between the church and the working class. Yes. Yeah. And I think... And that's particularly egregious in our case because we should know better because we're there. And one of the things I love and feel most passionately about the Church of England is that it is everywhere, has a presence everywhere. And if we keep our ear close to what people are saying and thinking and doing, we should be able to know better than most people 
where we are. I was surprised, I have to say, by the when I woke up, only two big surprises in recent years, putting on the radio, Trump won. <laughs> putting on the radio, the Brexit won. Yeah. I didn't, didn't expect it to come, but I wasn't entirely surprised because I was in a place where I could see that rising and coming. Although, I have to say, I was very complacent about it. What's your... Um, I, I used to have a, someone who... A, a training company who said, we've only got one sermon, really. We've only got one sermon which you try and trot out. And over the years, I've tried to work out what my, mine is and so forth. Do, 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 would you have a sense of what yours was? One... Well, I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't just have one, but there's a sort of core thing that the you thing, return to. Oh, I think the thing for me is when I was I lived for two years in a monastery, Anglican monastery in Yorkshire with the Murfield Fathers, and early in the morning I would go to church and I would sit and pray in front of an icon of the Anastasis, where you see Jesus Christ trampling down the doors of hell and reaching into the pit of Hades and pulling out Adam and Eve, rescued humanity from whom the shackles and the chains and the padlocks fall as they are pulled out of darkness into light and the possibility of a new and transformed life. And that's why I do what I do, I think. The possibility of a new life that's rich and full and radiant and extraordinarily powerful. Who's being pulled out of hell in your in mental image there? I mean, apart from you and me. Well, I think we all are. Yeah. And that we can be... We can... You see it, don't you? I sort of we talked about saints at lunch today, and sort of what's a saint? And I thought, saint is someone who lives a life that anticipates heaven. They're already in heaven, but they're living in this world. They're people who are out of the, you know, out of the darkness and into the light. And that's what I would wish to serve. So going from heaven to hell, if you don't mind, um, because I think listeners would uh, admonish me if I didn't mention Strictly Come Down. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon, too soon. <laughs> Did you like that, Link? Um, <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. Yeah, it was. It was It was really good fun, but it was also quite tough. I mean, the process was great. It was so much fun. It was like being a kid again. You yeah. could play and you yeah. had wonderful toys. Um, I adored the people, my fellow contestants, and adored the dancers and the people who work on the show. You know, the people who work on Strictly are absolutely the best at what they do, and it was just really great to see that. Um, and it's wonderful until you get booted off. And then, you know, the kind of uh, the dark reality at the heart of Strictly is that you're taken out of Dawn and Shot. And in my case, taken out of Dawn and Shot quite early on in the process. Oh, yeah. And I thought I would be good. I had uh, this delusional uh, belief oh. that there was a remarkable dance talent about to be discovered. <laughs> And and it wasn't the case. And oh, to mate. experience that live uh, in front of you know however many million people. Oh, that's that's painfully honest of you. Well, it's it's true. And uh, the excruciating thing is, uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember you dancing on like Bronski beat videos or things. Well, no, like that. I used to stand at the back. Behind you used to stand at the keyboard. Yeah, just but doing always that, within you? there was this person thinking, well, I would love to do that. I'd love to do that. <coughs> um, and then there's, there's this really funny thing where when you get to the, you know, when the programme finishes, the, the, the programme, the Sunday evening programme was, of course, recorded immediately after the live programme. So you know on Saturday night that you've been canned before the world does. And right. I was canned. And then the next day, I was at the Allthorpe Literary Festival having to do a thing. And a whole crowd of people turned up and wanted to know all about my Strictly experience and congratulations oh, and everything. Dear. And I knew I was out of it. And I had to kind of put on this game face, as they say. And... Uh, and it was really, I was having such a good time. And my lovely partner, Diane Buswell, was so adorable, is so adorable. And all of a sudden, you're just out of it. You go home, you're given these like death flowers, this kind of wreath. <laughs> you put in the back of a car and they drive you home. But you're out of it then. And you think, but I was having such a good time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But So that's quite tough, actually. I saw a lovely um, video you did of, of Diane when she came to, oh, to church. To church. Yes. <laughs> and we did our, I think it was a char-char. Yeah. Was it? <laughs> well, it was like a char-char, only worse. Oh. But I did, a, it was the Paso Doble that really did for me. I was, um, I think it was the lowest score ever for a Paso Doble. <laughs> I think so. Dipoli, dipoli. Now, there's one more thing we're going to talk about, which I know is a great love of your life, 
which which we can't really describe. I, I can't in my head think about Richard Coles without thinking about your beautiful hounds. Oh, the Dachshunds. Because you're a you're a just dog lover of the highest order, aren't you? I suppose I am. Yeah. I mean, I've always had Dachshunds. We had one when I was a little boy, and then when I was a bit older, I had another two, and now we have five. And uh, <laughs> it started with one. It was a present actually from an eccentric millionaire who I met once. And he gave me a dog, long story. And then we got another dog, and uh, my partner David and I now have seemed to have five. We don't seem to have five, we do have five. I would go away and come back, and like this happened recently, I went away at a thing, I came back, and David had sneaked in a fifth dog and thought I wouldn't notice. <laughs> um, but I did notice. They like your surrogate children. He's done it with alpacas now. He's also sneaked in three alpacas, two of which are pregnant. So now five dogs and about to have five alpacas. I just what what what's what a life there! What a life, mate! When you look back at uh, the trajectory of your life in your quieter moments, it's I mean you do it all the time because you've written your autobiography but, but and thought about it. What an extraordinary tra- trajectory! Well, I suppose. But I mean, at the time, it's one damn thing after another, isn't it? You don't think of what well, I don't. I've never thought about it. I've occasionally have felt an impulse that's obliged me to do something that is bolder than I would normally do. And I think that's been quite a significant thing. Um, And also I've been really lucky, Giles. I've had the means, I've had the opportunity, I've had the privileges, the advantages to make choices that other people simply cannot make. And the big passion of mine in ministry now, in parish ministry, is to do the very best I can, that we can as a community, to make sure that the kids and the young people get those opportunities. So we've built a nursery school so the kids from the poor end of town have a better achievement and better able to enjoy, you know, get the most out of their education when they go into school. I've transferred to the University of Northampton so we can get more people kind of geared into opportunities. It will take them to places that they haven't been able to go to before. That's a big theme. You once said to me, it's probably from the other first person I heard it from and, and it probably comes from somewhere else and you, I asked you once about the, the parish and to describe what was going on and you said organised goodness yeah. organised goodness and it was like oh god yes that's I recognise lightly organised goodness lightly organised goodness yeah no no heavy shepherding lightly organised goodness and also if you don't get in the way of people doing good stuff they'll just do good stuff and it's a community with four and a half thousand people I've been there for nine years we all know each other um, it works. Richard Coles, I love you lots. Cheers, oh, well, man. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Unheard.com.